Hello, everyone. This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials. Today, we are speaking with Dana Dayton about her journey as a cancer survivor, including the diagnostic odyssey that took way too long and was fraught with wrong turns and risk, and which unfortunately is all too common, but seems to have ended up in a good place. Dana brings an interesting perspective as a professional in online patient communities across a range of diseases. Dana's work has been in corporate marketing, publishing, partnering, and project management, and includes 25 years at National Geographic. She is now a project manager at Inspire, a company that has built online patient communities focused on many diseases with over 4 million users. From personal experience, Dana certainly knows firsthand the diverse set of concerns people have in such communities. Outside of work, Dana is focused on healthcare advocacy and public policy. She serves as an executive board member of ECAN, is a patient representative on the locally advanced esophageal cancer guideline panel for the American Society of Clinical Oncology. She's a member of the NCI Patient Advocate Steering Committee and the NCI Esophagogastric Task Force, and serves on the esophageal and stomach cancer Project Patient Advisory Committee, a project led by the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Dana lives in Alexandria, Virginia with her husband and three teenagers. Hello, Dana. Hi, Steve. How are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for speaking with us today. Your search for an accurate diagnosis took a long time and some wrong turns. The treatments your doctors recommended were sometimes off the mark, and only through your remarkable perseverance did you succeed in getting onto a treatment that seems to have helped. Without that, the outcome could have been very bad. Tell us what type of cancer you were diagnosed with and how you first knew there was something wrong. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. Um, yes, you are correct. I did have a myriad of wrong diagnoses, and it was very hard to get to the correct one. Ultimately, it ended up being stage four esophageal cancer, which is quite a formidable foe and not, not the diagnosis anybody wants. Um, however, to get there, it took a lot of different tests and a lot of guessing. I apparently have quite a high mutation burden and that makes your cancer markers hard to differentiate from one another. So many people can have tests that, that show that they have ovarian cancer or lung cancer because of their markers, but because of my high mutation burden, it wasn't giving clear signals. But I'll back up and tell you a little bit about where I started. I basically was a very healthy person, had exercised my whole life, ate well, and uh, was always super active. And I, it occurred to me that I started not feeling well when I was on a trip to Montana. I became very stiff and was having muscle and joint pain that just wouldn't go away. And when I started to research what was going on, I thought maybe it was lupus because I was also developing a malar rash across my face. And lupus is an autoimmune disease, and that sounded bad enough when I started doing the research. Uh, I saw several rheumatologists. One said, oh, yes, you definitely have lupus. Your ANA panel points that direction. Another rheumatologist said, oh, I don't know. It might be pre-lupus, and it might be something you'll be able to outrun. We'll see what happens. And then the third said, no, I don't think it's lupus at all. And, you know, was looking at things like Lyme's disease and, and other things. 
but I wasn't getting any better. So I decided to stick with the first one who actually thought I had lupus. And I uh, was given the prescription for hydrochloroquine, the one that's been in the news recently for COVID. And it actually did help. And it helped for a couple of months until all of a sudden I realized I am so tired. I actually still don't feel well. My midsection around my stomach and my back began to just ache in a way that prevented me from standing up straight or even sitting at the kitchen table to help my kids do homework. And the fatigue grew and the discomfort grew. And there were other little things um, that just didn't feel right. And it turned out that I think the, the lupus diagnosis and prescription were probably masking something that was more ominous underneath. So I had to keep going back to the doctor and um, had a number of other guesses like irritable bowel syndrome and things like that until all of a sudden one day I discovered a lymph node in my neck was huge. I hadn't noticed it before. It didn't hurt. And all of a sudden it was very palpable. And that took me yet again back to my primary care physician. And we immediately did an ultrasound and a fine needle biopsy. And all of those results came back uh, with necrotic tissue results, but nothing that pointed directly to a specific cancer. So that's when we started the barrage of other tests, like very invasive GYN tests. Um, we excised the lymph node itself. Um, I did not do another colonoscopy because I had already had several due to a family history of colon cancer. Uh, there were a number, oh, I did, uh, you know, high in, high definition breast exams because we thought maybe it was breast cancer. And all of these tests took a number of months and I was just feeling worse and worse and worse until finally I had a doctor suggest maybe we should do an endoscopy. You've had everything else. And I don't believe we did the endoscopy any earlier because I never had any of the typical symptoms for esophageal cancer. I never had any gastric reflux. I never had any trouble swallowing. I didn't have a cough that persisted. I had never really taken an antacid in my life. Didn't even know what it meant to have heartburn. So just for fun, we did an endoscopy. And that's when the doctor told me, I think I found it you have esophageal cancer and uh, you'll need to get a CAT scan and a PET scan. And we did that right away. And that's where we also figured out it was stage four. And I guess we knew it anyway. It was in my lymph node in my, in my neck, but it was also, I had it in my, in my abdomen, um, the peri, peri area, peritoneal area. And that's what was causing all of the discomfort, um, you know, in my stomach and around in my back. It was the lymph nodes that were basically kind of wrapping around my intestines. So they were metastasized. And that's when I found out we really had to get some treatment started, you know, some systemic treatment. So you're, you're um, drawing a picture for us of something that is very common, actually, in uh, complex diseases, not only cancer, but many diseases, this uh, diagnostic odyssey, this um, journey on trying to find out what exactly is wrong with you so that you can have it treated properly. And um, it could be said that diagnosis is the most important point in a patient's life because 
only with diagnosis can you really be sure that you're getting the right treatment. And even then, there still may be wrong decisions because it could be tricky yet. But if it's not even diagnosed properly, then there's a good chance the treatment isn't happening. And these issues are so critical because these diseases are progressive and dangerous and the damage could be irreparable. Isn't that right? So you... Yes, um, it is. What kind of wrong conclusions were uh, doctors coming to? And I mean, how many doctors did you have to see and how long did this actually take while this was undiagnosed and untreated? Well, starting with the lupus, it uh, took over a year uh, to get to the real diagnosis. I'm probably closer to 18 months. But once we figured out it was cancer, it was probably about three or four months. It was just trying to figure out the exact kind. And I had one doctor who was pretty sure it was ovarian cancer and had me signed up to start chemo basically, you know, within that week for ovarian cancer. But luckily, I just felt that that was not right. And I had continued to pursue other opinions up and down the East Coast at the major institutions that we all know and love, um, as well as some community oncology groups here in my area. And I just didn't feel like the ovarian diagnosis added up. I had never had any other symptoms of that either. So that, you know, maybe isn't fair, but it just didn't seem right. Others thought maybe it's a cancer of an unknown primary or a cancer of two primaries. And that scared me to death because, like you just said, if you don't have an exact diagnosis, you can't treat it. And when you have a cancer of an unknown primary, you would be putting, you know, chemo towards it that might not be the right match and might not end up being effective. So that's why I was on such a quest to to really get the diagnosis. I had known from being a caregiver to my mom, who died of esophageal cancer several years, I'm sorry, she died of colon cancer several years earlier, I knew how important it was to to find the right team and to get the right treatment. So you um, eventually um, arrived at a treatment, but not before, I think you've mentioned before to us that a doctor recommended palliative care for you. Is that right? Yeah, not just one. Uh, Most of the oncologists that I saw, whether they were at major academic institutions or community oncology groups, they said, well, Mrs. Dayton, I'm really sorry to tell you, you have stage four esophageal cancer. And our recommendation really is to just enjoy your family for the next 10 or 12 months, and we will make you as comfortable as you can be so that you can do that. And that just did not sit well with me. I, you know, other than kind of feeling rotten, I was otherwise in good physical shape. And that just, you know, I said, that can't be true. Like, I've got to be able to take care of my three kids who were roughly 8, 10, and 12 then. And this, there's got to be more you can do. There have, there have to be other options. And they said, we're really very sorry, but, you know, most of the people that have stage four esophageal cancer really don't live beyond a year, and it gets rough, and we just want to help you enjoy this time. And when I started doing my research, I learned that most of the people that have this diagnosis are older gentlemen, 65 and above, who have indulged in drinking and poor diets and maybe not as much, you know, other healthy habits 
that I had. And, and on top of that, I, I was fairly young. I was 43. And I just couldn't accept that they were going to put me in the same bucket as, as these other people. And I really, truly believed that my opportunities and chances and possibly even my outcome could be much different if they could just look at the patient and not the data. I wanted them to see who I was. I wanted them to see that I was otherwise healthy and had always been. I had never smoked. I didn't drink. And I had exercised pretty much every day of my adult life. So I wanted them to better understand my lifestyle and who I was and and recognize that I was young. And if anybody had a chance, it should have been me. And I wanted them to hear me say, let me try something. Let me let you know, give me the best chemotherapy you have. I want to make it to radiation. And I ultimately want to make it to surgery, which really usually was not an option for stage four patients. So this shows remarkable um, perseverance. The um, the time that's elapsing, you know that something is progressive and damaging. Um, there's, uh, I think uh, most people would all be experiencing uh, quite a bit of fear and find it hard to focus on other parts of life. But um, and then you have the professionals at the uh, top cancer institutes telling you these things, yet you persevered and you got on a treatment. Um, I believe it was the immunotherapy Opdivo. Uh, is that right? And what was the result? Actually, that came much later, Steve. I first started on a very common systemic chemo treatment. Um, it's a combination of several chemo drugs that is used in gastric cancers. So I had eight cycles of something that's called EOX, which is a really tough chemo recipe, but I'm really grateful uh, for it because it, it actually helped provide some resolution of my tumor load or, or reduction, I should say. And uh, it got me to the point where I felt like I could have the discussion with my oncologist that maybe we could further reduce the tumor, tumor burden uh, with radiation therapy. And at the time, the physician that I was seeing, he he still said, no, no, I'm glad you're doing well on chemo, but basically the cancer is going to win. The, the chemo won't be able to do everything. And I said, well, why can't we talk about radiation therapy or surgery? And he said, well, you know, most stage four patients, it's, it's just too much for them and we, we don't want to reduce your quality of life. And I, I felt like I was having the same conversation over and over and I said, you know, I'm ready for this. Like, I can't just accept where we are with the chemo and what it's done. I'm grateful for it, but we've got to look for other options now and we have to go to the next step. And when the physician that I was receiving the chemo from didn't agree, I was lucky enough to find another physician that was open to other possibilities. And that connection was made through a very good friend of mine who knew someone else that he had treated for esophageal cancer. And I think that's why I'm such a big fan of connections, because when patients can find one other little glimmer of hope that gives them enough to wake up with and, and try something else the next day and just have a little hope in their in their heart, it, it's life-changing. It really is. It, it helps you not succumb to the difficulties of the disease and the discomfort of the chemo, it's not fun to go through. You're tired, you're anemic, you're, you know, you've lost your hair. All of that can really beat you down. But when you've got a glimmer of hope, which is what this new physician provided and said, yes, 
let's let's look at your case, let's talk about radiation. Um, it, it was everything, and uh, he, he did help me get to uh, the radiation part of treatment, and that further reduced my tumor burden, and we were then able to talk about an esophagectomy, which is not something most people would like to have. It's a really, really tough surgery with a high morbidity, but I knew that that was really my only chance to, to outrun esophageal cancer, and we got there. And then the immunotherapy that you mentioned, Optivo, that came a little bit later um, when I had a recurrence. And unfortunately, most people with stage four esophageal cancer, um, you know, if they do outrun it for a little while, there's a high mm-hmm. propensity for uh, recurrences. And I, I did have that. And uh, luckily, there had been enough research that had been done uh, that showed um, a lot of solid tumors were responding to immunotherapy. And I was retested for uh, microsatellite instability, which uh, was another indication um, that immunotherapy could work for me. I ended up being MSI high. So I've been on immunotherapy a number of years now. Um, It's almost like a maintenance drug for me, but it has, um, you know, reduced the chances of further recurrences. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. I feel so healthy on it. I don't really have any side effects, and I'm just extremely grateful that my physicians were willing to look outside the box and try something new. It was not FDA approved at the time. I received, you know, started receiving it, and I'm just so thankful that they took the chance and pursued the compassionate care use um, because I don't think I would be here if they hadn't. You got to use the drug on the basis of compassionate use. I did. Meaning you're not in the clinical trial, but you need it, and they they work out a way for you to have it. Absolutely. Yes, that's correct. So um, what you're describing, although it's one particular form of cancer and you're one individual, which is the most important part in this whole formula, is the fact that each patient is an individual. So many other people with other diseases would relate to what you're talking about because of all the complexities all the professionals who sincerely want to help and are well-trained to do so, but it actually takes that kind of individual perseverance to keep going and not, not give up and trying to find the way. And eventually this time uh, you did. Um, what would you recommend to doctors and to patients knowing what you know now? Well, there's quite a few things. I would say to the patient, you have to do your research you have to read everything, um, even if it doesn't seem like it's a credible source. You have to find other patients. You really need to understand what they have gone through. Uh, ask them if they've done clinical trials. Ask them what chemo regimens they've been on. Ask them what uh, institutions they've been seen by, because it gives you a lot of questions that you can ask of your physician. And as long as you can keep that conversation going, I really do believe it makes your physicians work harder for you and they know that you're invested. You also have to ask your physicians to see the person behind the cancer. There's a whole lot there that could impact the treatment and inform the decisions that they're making for you. They really have to look beyond just the the basic statistics of the cancer, and they have to understand the individual um, so that they can apply the right practices. And I would say 
Also, patients have to allow themselves to be vulnerable. You're going to need the help of friends and family and your medical team. Um, but, you know, you can't do it all yourself, but you're going to have to do some of the research too. And I think when you can find the team that works for you, things will go so much more smoothly because you, you just can't fight it on your own in any sense of the, of the term. You, you've got to have the team. It's, it's too much to, yes, to handle. The medical team is very important. And for some patients who may be newer at it may not realize that you, it doesn't have to just be one doctor who's making these decisions and tells you how it is. Even if that doctor is at a fine institute and well-educated, you have to find um, the team and you have to get other opinions and um, to find a solution that's right for you, that the patient actually plays a role in collaborating with these professionals. It's a, it's a form of collaboration. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of amazing physicians out there and, you know, some are great with patients and some aren't. And the ones that are not so great with patients, I mean, they serve a fabulous role. They're, they're conducting the clinical trials and doing the research that makes a difference for all of us. But you have to find the patient that has the rapport and the um, empathy to see who you are in the clinic, to spend the time with you, to answer your questions, no matter how, uh, you know, hard the questions are. I, I learned that I had to ask silly questions, the gross questions, things that nobody wants to talk about, but they did move the ball down the field because they, they really helped my doctor understand who I was. And they also helped my team, uh, just look at things a different way. I, I really think they did. It, it, it took the conversation sometimes in a, a different direction than it might have otherwise gone. So your recommendation to the doctors, you've just said it, is to um, spend the time to, to get into this dialogue with the patient, to collaborate with the patient and the team uh, versus just having the quick appointment and walk, you know, walking out of the room. Absolutely. When you are given a diagnosis or a prognosis of you know, 10 to 12 months, you have to use every minute uh, very, very effectively. And being a passive patient will not, will not help your case. Is there a way, um, we're running uh, short on time, but I wanted to ask you about um, data science and how it might help us reveal more actionable information. I know you know some things about that. Yes, thank you, Steve. I mean, this is an area that I am so passionate about. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think connections are everything. And if I didn't have the connection to find the medical team that ultimately helped me the most, I probably wouldn't be here. And now, because social media has, has taken over our world, there are so many opportunities to find people that are going through similar experiences. And that's one reason that I found Inspire, I was looking for help for myself, but I also really wanted to, to play a role in helping other people find the connections that they needed. Data science allows you to slice and dice things that will reveal actionable insights um, that people can, can actually use in their treatment plan, and it will help inform you know, the standard of care later. But unless you have an aggregated group of people from which to draw some of these conclusions, you may, you may never know that 3% of patients actually experience one thing or another because it's just not enough to, to bubble up without the magic of data science. 
Yes, we are, things are certainly developing nicely in that area, and patients are now and doctors are supported by the um, the wave really of technology change that's um, starting to give us lots a lot more to work with in terms of tools. I'm sorry that we're out of time, Dana, but thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I think it helps a lot of people. It's a remarkable story of perseverance, and we're really honored to have you on uh, the phone today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. It was nice to chat with you. We've been speaking today with Dana Dayton of the online patient community provider Inspire, whose communities you can see at inspire.com. This is Steve Smith from WCG Patient Radio. Special thanks to our producers and executive producer, Lauren Osmore, production staff, Isabel Andresen, Roxana Gilford-Blake, technical director, David Fogel, and head of studio, Amy Hutnick. Goodbye, everybody.